Royal nuts. Sea salt cashews for Todd Julie. His reward party from returning from the wilds of Ottawa. Jessica, can you turn off that audio? What does this do? Like, why am I wearing Because you'll be able to hear your sexy voice. Oh, through the... hear my own voice? Oh, yeah. I hear everything. You're going to be a real star. Oh, this is, this is weird. This is artist Lewis. They found, like, a record in a record store from, like, the 1980s. And allegedly, it was written by this mysterious dude who, like, drove into um, the recording studio. He was there for, like, a day. He skipped out on the bill. Um, the records were pressed and released anyway. Royalty checks haven't been delivered. Like he's this mysterious 1980s musician that came and went. And there was debate going online about whether it was a hoax or not. But apparently, people have found these records in antique record shops and stuff. Why don't you just record this? I am. Oh, should I keep my headphones? Yeah, let's keep our headphones on. The, the post show after show it was a slow burn so anyways they, they have this uh, Lewis record that they were reviewing on Pitchfork because it's been re-released and among like music snobs they're kind of debating like whether it's a hoax or not right because it's like this synthy 1980s kind of like Lynchian atmospheric record and it fits like really well with what's going on now and so like there's been a resurgence of interest in it Hmm. and people think that it's like too apropos like it's too of the time like it might be some sort of elaborate hoax that somebody put together as long as like six or seven years ago and it's only now paying off right and like totally reminded me of like the muffins thing (laughs) so it's like todd and i had like this idea that we were gonna oh god you're gonna spill the secret Right on your podcast? Well, that's why it's called The Idea Grave, right? Because we're taking stuff that isn't going to go anywhere, and you publish it in at least a podcast form, so it's, it'll it's have... It's fine, because I have another brand now. <laughs> so the idea was... It's like... called Plague Monster. <laughs> What's Plague Monster? It's my new band. <laughs> so anyways, the idea was like, because Todd and I don't have any musical ability... We were going to found uh, a hoax, a, a fake band called The Muffins, which were going to be an industrial band from the 80s or 90s. Was it 80s or 90s? I don't think we ever talked about when they were from. They were just going to be like so underground that nobody yeah. had their records or had even heard of them. And yeah. we were going to print t-shirts and stuff and get other musicians that we knew to get involved in the hoax and start making songs that were in the style of the muffins the covers of the purported covers of muffin songs to which the originals don't exist people would have been they would claim that they had heard a muffins mixtape or that they had seen the muffins live and they were going to re-record covers based on the experience because no recorded material was available yeah and the gimmick was this is so good <laughs> That is, I have to say, it's still kind of breaking my heart that we're letting people in on the secret. But I guess, fine, it's never going to happen. It might become right. real now, because there's only like 25 people that listen to this podcast. <laughs> so, like, so maybe, maybe s- they're going to be in on the conspiracy. So if anybody wants to do a Muffins cover, you should contact myself or Jesse. So the gimmick of the band was, it's an industrial band, 
and the percussion is all machine gun and machine noises and bomb noises and bomb noises and screaming <laughs> the vocals are just screaming yeah and the first cover was done by Cameron Tomset, which I'll overlay. <laughs> his new, he told me his new band name, and it was a bit better than Coat Rack. Spirographs. Was that it? No, mm. I don't think so. That's what he put online. No, it's something new now. Oh, new, new. It's a new name, but I'm totally forgetting it, so you can follow up with him. Cameron Tomset's new band. Yeah. I don't know if it's online. It might be so new. You, this might be the first time you're hearing about it is on this podcast. Yeah. But yeah, oh, that would have been so sweet if we had carried that out. When I think about how my like art career should have gone, mm-hmm. if I had like known what hard work was at the time, <laughs> and if I'd, if I'd had, I guess, bigger... Okay, let's see. If I'd had more nerve... Um, I would have done th- projects like that rather than try and do uh, illustration or, or anything like that. You know what William Shatner would say to you? What? Has been. Might again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if the, if the whole public service politics thing doesn't work out, then I might come back to it. I think that the one thing about the Jesus year, the 33, I think why that's a classic tipping point mm-hmm. is that you reach a level of maturity and competence that you can launch the good ideas that you have in a, in a much more practical and focused way mm-hmm. much more quickly. So you understand the tactics now better than you did when you were 20 mm-hmm. and you understand your own skill set and your own um, weak points better now than you did when you were 20. Mm-hmm. So I think that puts you in the perfect position to be able to do some of these ideas in a in a delegated way, you know. Well, I try to delegate this because I always tell you and Cam <laughs> my ideas. I just fire pearls at you guys, but you're like, well, then, you know, I you never do it. I'm open. Well, <laughs> this uh, even recording this, this is yeah. one step closer to materializing the muffins conspiracy. Okay. Well, let's issue a public call. It's it's. Odonis Odonis needs to do a muffins cover, so I'm calling them out on your podcast. Like the ice bucket challenge, you could. <laughs> I'm ice bucket. Cha- I'm muffin challenging. Uh, my muffin bucket challenging. I'm Brundle muffin bucket challenging. Odonis Odonis. This is so perfect because Dean is the number one fan of this show. Really? <laughs> so he'll totally hear this. Right, that's great. And we described it and everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now, but now I have my new project, which is uh, Plague Monster. What the hell is Plague Monster? Well, it's not as elaborate or underground as uh, the Muffins was. It's kind of like I would say it's the disappointing side project to my much better band of the Muffins. <laughs> it's like if Muffins was Tool, then it's more pl- arty. Plague Monster is a perfect circle. Oh, okay. Right? It's the it's the wig version. It's the wig version, <laughs> and it's just straight up death metal. It's not experimental. Mm-hmm. It's just like awesome death metal. It's called Plague Monster. That's a bit that's a bit harder to delegate to just go to somebody and say like write me some awesome death metal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm still w- w- I'm still working on how exactly 
this first album is going to be recorded. Because Lee was breaking it down. He was going on about his love of death metal, and he was saying, "You should have Lee new, on to talk it's the about new ca- death metal. It's the new classical. He's like, there is intricate uh, composition as Bach. <laughs> he blew me away. Like, he, he, the, it's funny, but like he'll um, he'll make you believe. I believe it. Like when he he has said something that it's set. Oh God, it's such a good quote. I wish I had it on a t shirt. But the last time I came back four months ago, he was like, uh, I got to tell you what really is getting me out of bed in the morning these days is abstract death metal. (laughs) And I was like, I know exactly what you mean. That's what you look forward to in the morning. Yeah. Like fucking Wednesday. But he can talk about it. He's read like he he's reads books on like the evolution of music and stuff so you should definitely have him on to talk about it yesterday i went over to his place and half of the evening was us like talking about (laughs) death metal and he was playing me different death metal stuff on youtube Uh and then the other half was talking about movies (laughs) but he'd be a great guest because that guy he's he's, already said that he wants to come on he's a connoisseur like nobody's business Mm -hmm. yeah well i was i always love hearing his point of view on stuff because like uh, you know, it was the case in college, and it's still the case now. Is that he's so talented? Like he's always a couple of yeah. pegs ahead of us, yeah, and everything that I just like seeing what his what his lens is focusing on. Plus, he's like not going to take any shit whatsoever. <laughs> so, if you want to get like a really good show, you could prod him a little bit, and you might he might even like punch you on air. <laughs> he takes his glasses off first. <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to do that. Yeah. In fact, he's probably going to punch me now. He's going to punch the, the computer yeah. for saying that. Mm-hmm. Hey, guys, I'm going to be doing another list for you today. And this time, this is not really one for you, but maybe one, to, one for you to share with your friends. This is the five albums that will get you into extreme metal. And maybe it might not work for you. It definitely works for me. And I generally think this list would work for quite a lot of people. But yeah, what I was going to say about uh, <clears throat> Under the Skin, I thought that like it had such really amazing, iconic scenes, set pieces. Like that sequence where the family is drowning in the Scottish sea mm-hmm. and like the husband runs in after the wife who's running in after the dog and then the Czechoslovakian surfer goes out to um, help them too and then ScarJo like beats his head in with a rock on the on the beach. You remember that? Yeah. That was one of the most tense scenes that I had seen in a movie in the last like bunch of years have you ever seen the man who fell to earth with david bowie nope it's a direct ripoff the whole movie is ripped off like it's including that scene i don't know if that that special that specific scene is probably not but it's just the man who fell to earth with scar joe in it does he pull off his skin at the end of it and get set on fire by a rapist i think he does actually he pulls off i think i think he pulls off his nipples if i'm (laughs) If I'm remembering this properly. That's the seam on the suit. The only uh, way to undo it yeah. is to... Or like probably his butt crack or something. <laughs> I don't know. The valve like on yeah. a beach ball? <laughs> yeah. Psss. Like the uh, butt crack was just... It was like one of those 3D chalk drawings on a sidewalk where mm-hmm. like you think it's three-dimensional, but actually it's smooth surface. It's like a sticker you pulled out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, another thing that I liked about it, I thought that <clears throat> the because it's a woman, right, right, as the predator, um, 
you I felt like I, she kept on suckering me in each time like she'd pick up a new person and go like oh maybe she's changed but didn't you also feel like it was like species but not as entertaining I never I never saw a species I, that's isn't also, it super cheesy it's the same movie mm-hmm. except uh, species like she turns into a beast the, cashes the check more mm-hmm. I don't know yeah, I mean he knows how to film things, but it, it's just like in the very end when her, she kind of pulls her skin off and she's like this black creature. Mm-hmm. I was kind of like, I wish that there had been a lot more of that. And uh, it's just, I don't know. He was going for that ambient, airy, contemplative thing, but I didn't really understand what I was supposed to be contemplating. Or, I guess the style of it, I thought, made it feel more real. Like, uh, but it's an alien movie. Sure, but it's also a movie about kind of conquest and about um, subtle integration, migration, immigration, that kind of thing. I liked the the ending shot where um, Scarjo's burning on the ground, and it kind of pans up to all those snowflakes falling on the camera lens, as if like, and you get the the feeling that her boss, the guy in the motorcycle leather pacing around on the cliff looking at the new fallen snow you get a feeling that there's thousands of other creatures from the same planet that are all doing the same thing all over the place and that even though she's dead the invasion continues i don't know i I thought it uh i liked that um it expanded my imagination into areas that i didn't expect Hmm. see yeah i just felt like my imagination was like expanding into places that the movie wasn't going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's—I don't know—it's tough to—it's tough to explain why you like or don't like things to people who like don't feel the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, because I mean, I don't know. Any any time I've tried to explain why I like something to people, I find I—I I almost come up with a fake answer. Yeah as to why I like the thing. And then later on, I'll think about it and I'm like, that's not really why I like it. I mean, I just like it because it's awesome. Mm -hmm. But if someone else doesn't feel like it's awesome, then I don't know how you communicate that Mm -hmm. to them. I think what also happens though, is like for both of us, we've been on the side of, of liking something that our friend group didn't. And then for a while you have to like kind of champion the movie. And then over the course of, years sometimes it takes mm. a while for people's consciousnesses to yeah. kind of align and go like or, oh yeah or or you could think that attack of the clones is a good movie <laughs> and it could take years for your friends to bring you around to the reality of it <laughs> and suddenly the spell wears off yeah <laughs> you go oh god oh no what have i attached my seal of support to <laughs> yeah to the point where, like, even the title is stupid. You should yeah, have but, known. But you probably knew that <laughs> even at the time. Well, I was confused. I, went, I remember going to Rob Simpson, and I'm like, what do you think about that Star Wars title? Is that a, a joke or something? He's like, oh, I don't know. It sounds pretty good. Think about it. Return of the Jedi, Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones. I think it works. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, I don't care that much about names. Like, I... I think I said before, uh, if I were a director, I'd probably just call my movies like Untitled 1, Untitled 2, <laughs> like painters do. Yeah. Because who 
cares what the title of the thing is as long as it's a good movie. I think it's because, like, if you run into somebody who doesn't know anything about the movie, they immediately ask the same questions. They're like, oh, yeah, what's it about? And you tell them what's it about. And then they need a title to, like, be snappy enough that... It's called Untitled One. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think he said it was called Untitled. And they'll be like, that is so pretentious. (laughs) What does pretentious mean? (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you, picking up on our last... uh, I had a, a few moments of self-realization listening to the first podcast we did on Batman. Mm-hmm. I listened to it and I was like, I really need to stop swearing <laughs> and stop <laughs> referring to women as chicks. <laughs> and I really, you've been, outgrown it. I've really been working on that. It didn't, it just didn't sound the same when I heard it uh-huh. as I thought it sounded in my head, I guess. Yeah. Well, I know why you do it. It kind of it kind of makes things a little bit more casual, so like the thought doesn't sound um, heavy-handed or overly intellectual. Yeah, yeah, that's but. the that's the intent. But when I listened to it, I was like, oh, I sound like a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, there's no comments on the website, so. We'll never know. It's not going to come now. It's going to come 20 years from now when I'm, uh, when my political career is on the line. Why did you describe Anne Hathaway's sentimental performance as Catwoman as a dumb chick? I don't think I said without that. ears. I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> paraphrase, paraphrase. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to try to avoid avoid that this time. Why cut out swearing though? Did you overfuck? I just didn't like the way it sounded. I I thought it sounded obnoxious. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Do you think... Deanna kind of agreed with me. Yeah. Yeah. You swear too much. Use your vocabulary. (laughs) Yeah, that was kind of... I feel like that's where she was going with it. She's pretty pithy herself, though. Yeah, but... Deanna can kind of benefit from... There's like a delightful contradiction because she's like a small, petite girl. Mm-hmm. So if she happens to like swear like a sailor or if she happens to say things that are politically incorrect, it's endearing. Mm-hmm. Whereas being like a 30 something white guy, when I do stuff like that, I just come off like a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> she's got kind of a tank girl thing going on. Yeah, so... You have to kind of keep that in mind, I think. It's uh, funny. I don't know what the internet is going to do to language. People go on and on about the way that language is changing in a typewritten way, like the integration of numbers and stuff into the into the language and abbreviations and all of that. But I don't know how people's speaking styles are going to change now that stuff like television changed um the way politicians speak for instance right like you think of something like the lincoln douglas debates right where two politicians would get together for four hours and they would go back and forth and they would get to the root of their opinions on a subject right right Right. and the intent was to try and find some sort of truth and uh, some sort of consensus in a population so that they knew which direction the herd was going to go in and then once television got in and became popular, 
um, that medium was dictated towards like trying to move product and trying to um, trick people into watching advertisements. So all of the, the culture and all of the language became more um, catchphrasy and um, fragmented because you needed to figure out a way to get your point across as quickly as possible before the commercial break. Mm-hmm. Right? Isn't it crazy that even in um, uh, like something as important as like a presidential election, the, the debate is an hour long so that it can fit between like commercial blocks and won't take up too much time that could otherwise be profitable for advertisers? Well, I don't, I don't so much. I kind of like the challenge of speaking and writing concisely. Mm-hmm. I mean, in what I do uh, in, in public policy at the school or in my recent co-op, uh, you have to be really concise because you're writing for, in the case of the co-op, you're writing for, let's say, the assistant deputy minister. Mm-hmm. And they don't have a lot of time to read whatever the, your thing is. So it has to be pretty concise. And I kind of like the challenge of that. So I don't know. It's but efficient. The thing that's crazy, though, is that when it comes to something like podcast um, as a medium, right, you can have a three hour lecture or something that you're listening to while you work out mm-hmm. from the teaching series or from, you know, whatever your topic Mm-hmm. Um, there's no way, reason why you can't um, have both a truncated 20-minute summary of mm-hmm. the topic that's for somebody who's busy and doesn't really care, right? then in a, a more in-depth kind of study of the thing that's right. by the same author with the same kind of language but goes in deeper detail, and then an incredibly detailed you know, four-hour kind of university block of yeah. lectures. Well, on, on I guess your pod, a podcast... <clears throat> especially a podcast if it's supposed to have some comedic value has like a different objective. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that the problem with the presidential debates is that they're short. I mean, the thing about that is just that they're using smokescreen issues that are important for only very small segments of the population in order to not talk about what their real agenda is, which is more important things like trade talks and like the gradual or sometimes not so gradual restructuring of the economy. They never mm-hmm. talk about that. They just talk about maybe identity issues, which are important for people, but uh, easier for the for politicians to kind of go back and forth with. And it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really threaten that much. You can't make a lot of mistakes with when you're only covering those bases. Um, but I, I think that um, th- the reason that they're able... Th- it's it's arrived at that equilibrium because of the mediums that it's being expressed through. Like eventually, I think the next wave of leaders 15 years from now are not going to be able to compete unless they do things like podcasting every couple of days. And because of the nature of the medium, you can't get away with sticking to bumper sticker um, talking points if you're mm-hmm. speaking for three hours. Mm-hmm. You'll fuck up. And it's it's such an erosive it erodes the the defenses that politicians have built up like somebody like sarah palin can't have a podcast where she's able to like stick to talking points for three hours it's just too hard right you can't self-edit that way i'm not sure i mean i know that's certainly a trend but i'm not sure that everybody would definitely have to follow that trend there's something to be said for saying less 
even in uh, an environment where people increasingly have the opportunity to say more and more. Mm-hmm. But if you think of like a band like Tool, right? Mm-hmm. The, when they were really good, nobody even knew what these guys looked like. Mm-hmm. I mean, in fact, the less you knew, the more you could kind of imagine them to be however you wanted them to be, which I think is kind of powerful. And you can also, I mean, everybody, well, anybody who knows how to successfully go on a first date knows a little bit about this, that you don't put all your cards on the table immediately. And in fact, a lot, I mean, maybe this is cynical, but oh, hold oh, on. Just oh, let me, just let me take call. this. I have to take this. Hello? It's on his fucking phone. Oh, I want a Caribbean vacation from WestJet. Sorry. No, that's so important. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've won a few this week. Excuse me, you're live on the air. <laughs> Address the yeah. nation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so saying less, the aura of mystery. Yeah, I, I guess you've encapsulated it. That's all I mean, is that sometimes if you just, if you're couple navigable symbols that you offer to people are well chosen and coordinated you can people can like fill up fill you up with like their dreams because they don't know much about you it's almost like what obama did right you throw out a few words like hope and i mean what is that supposed to mean but Mm -hmm. it can mean anything to anybody Mm -hmm. yeah i think that you're perfectly describing the current era and what i'm kind of saying is like what comes after that you know but why would what you're saying i mean just because the opportunity is there why would that have to happen because i think it's more powerful i I think if you are working with a medium where you have the permission to whisper in people's ears for four hours a day they naturally will align with a lot of the the things that are going on in your imagination they'll start caring about the things that you care about and once you build up enough relationships with that, it becomes a political force. I mm. mean, those the people, the two million people who download Joe Rogan's podcast a month um, have all started doing jujitsu and buying, you know, Blendtec blenders and um, yeah, you know, thing after thing after thing. His interests become their interests. Mm. Because and Oprah is the same. It was kind of like a an earlier version of that kind of. Um, intimacy but not nearly as powerful like oprah if she was working now starting at like 26 or something she'd be a podcaster it's 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 the same kind of medium that she was working with before but much more intimate and much more powerful i think because you end up having something akin to like when you live with somebody how you kind of pick up their biorhythms right like back when we were roommates it would be not uncommon that like you have the same music in your head that just like pops in or you finish each other's sentences, all of that kind of stuff that comes with just being in proximity with another person. But are the things that we want from an Oprah or a Joe Rogan, the same things that we want from politicians? Like, I don't know if they necessarily fulfill the same need for Mm -hmm. people. And you know, it could be, I'm just, this just occurred to me now, but it could be that, you for people like that who are i guess in a sense lifestyle coaches yeah you want to know as much as possible because i don't know they're 
the more they're like people like you, the more you can kind of model your behavior after theirs. Mm -hmm. But for someone who is in some sense a leader, um, I don't know if you want to look too closely at that and like completely demystify it. I mean, it's probably for democratic purposes, it would probably be good if you did, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure that there isn't some need that people have to kind of have some sort of a mystique around the people who are making decisions on their behalf or people that they look up to in, in some deeper way or maybe not deeper, but in that way. Mm -hmm. Do you think that it's a necessary aspect of power or it's a necessary aspect of being subservient to power? Both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is probably going to get into sort of well-worn discussions that we've had, which is fine because they're fun, but I'm not sure there's a kind of symbiosis between the more powerful personality or the more assertive personality and the personal, the weaker personality. And I'm not sure like they, I feel like it's not, as simple as in the current situation, the elite are powerful and the rest of us are like dupes Mm -hmm. and like easily tricked. I think there actually might be a need that is also being served by the people in keeping themselves a little bit mystified by what's happening. Because I think, I mean, when, and we know this, I, I mean, anyone who, looks at politics or anything like that remotely seriously catches a little glimpse of this and when you look at these things seriously it doesn't just it doesn't just make you question authority and question leaders but it makes you question yourself like an awful lot and yeah what your uh what the thing your goals and like your comforts are and like how much they're worth and that can be really disturbing for people and i'm I don't know what the direct correlation is with like mystifying a leader, but I feel like there's there's something there. There's something to keeping that person on a pedestal where they're almost more than human. Yeah, and I I think that what I've kind of observed is that <clears throat> if you look at something like Rob Ford or George W. Bush, mm-hmm. there seems to be aspects of um, left wing activists. There's a, a portion of left wing activists who kind of like that those people are in power because it gives them a lightning rod to complain about stuff. Mm. And you can take every issue that um, those types of people care about and you can lump it onto the big brother, the the evil leader who's mm-hmm. in office and it takes away a personal accountability, right? Mm-hmm. In, a, in a kind of vague way. Like what is somebody like Naomi Klein to do if um, Nike did go out of business, right? You know, like if, if there was like meaningful caps on corporate power or whatever, but humans still remained as materialistic as they've always been, you know, how would that change the perception of the fight? You know, Naomi Klein's a national treasure. Oh, I, she's a great lady, but I'm saying I'm just I'm just talking about like the idea of how the piss is kind of taken out of of the battle when somebody who's sympathetic to your side is in political power. 
You yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah. the world doesn't do a 180 whenever an election cycle happens. Yeah. Well, this is sort of related to, I guess, my cons- what I think sort of happened in the States with Obama and what I'd be sort of concerned about with Trudeau. Mm-hmm. My reservations about Trudeau are that he hasn't really said anything that would lead me to believe that he's a progressive candidate. I mean, he supports marijuana. Yeah, but who cares? It's important. Everybody does marijuana anyway. It's important. There's a lot of people who are in jail. There's a lot of economic opportunities that are being missed by not getting behind it. Well, there's nothing that would lead me to believe that he is any different from Krejcian. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think he's basically a fr- an old-school free market liberal, mm-hmm. um, which I think we need a leader that's more progressive than that now. But And the nice thing about having somebody like Harper in power, even though Harper is, I guess, worse, is that it does focus... Um, the kind of progressive energies in the country and it may, it allows things to be very black and white. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have a sort of false left that postures itself as left wing, but in fact is not progressive on any real economic business issue, mm-hmm. it saps a lot of the energy of, uh, of the left. A lot of people get confused and want to support the lesser of two evils, no matter what. And that becomes difficult. I mean, that's kind of what you see with Obama, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, it's 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 totally logical. Um, it's a totally logical point to arrive at, right? Because you already see a lot of uh, Democratic leaders trying to distance themselves to the point where you wonder, is Rand Paul going to be able to run run away with this election cycle just because like the Democrats have decided that they don't want to win? Um, you know, well, yeah, I've said a bunch of times that I suspect there's quite a bit more collusion between the parties than people generally realize. I don't, I haven't read up on this, so this is pure speculation, but I feel like there's really kind of a good cop, bad cop routine that goes on between the Democrats and the Republicans. I feel like it's almost the same agenda, just like moved forward through time i mean they leave iraq i guess under a democratic president but they leave basically because they're broke and their economy is like in ruins Mm -hmm. right so i don't know if i ever if you ever really see a break in u.s foreign policy objectives or you know their approach to anything Mm -hmm. it's just when we're feeling good and we're ready to really go out and mess things up we have a republican government and then when someone needs to clean up the mess that's when we bring in our democratic party i think that you could arrive at the same spot though with just having a government as big as as america does like it has a a certain amount of momentum to it right you can't turn the ship all at once so there's going to be gradual arcs between administrations how so well i mean you know what exactly would um, a change of of policy look like if it was radical like they did end the wars and kind of yeah it seems like obama is a much more um covert t- 
type of guy. He likes he likes uh, military SEAL operations, sniper attacks, um, military drones, and sneaky kinds of, of covert type of stuff, whereas George Bush seemed to be much more bombastic. He liked photo ops. He liked the idea that he gets to be a president with an important war under his belt and yet all of that kind of stuff. doesn't really seem like Obama is interested in... Well, again, I'd say that some of that has to do with the position of the United States, like, Mm -hmm. as the two different guys enter office. Yeah. And, I mean, all that drone stuff, I don't think, that wasn't really available to Bush, right? That stuff hadn't really taken off at the beginning of the Iraq war. Was Was drone technology sort of... Yeah, I feel I feel going? like they would have drones, you know. And I mean, Maybe. there's nothing about drones that's inherently like high tech. I mean, you could do most of the the stuff that the drones are involved in with human pilots back in the day. Yeah. I don't know. I really can't I don't think any either of us can really back up our arguments beyond just, our basic suspicions. Yeah, just so uh I don't know. It's hard to say, but I don't know. I'd be suspicious. I feel like there's a real tendency of the left to bend over backwards to make excuses for Obama. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's, I guess you could, there is some kind of reason to saying you want to avoid the lesser of two evils. And even Obama, I mean, I realize that the president is not like a sole dictator who can choose to do whatever he wants. He has to deal with, the Congress and quite a few checks and like way more checks and balances than we have here in Canada, like than Harper has. But I don't know. I'm not sure whether or not it would be better than really just everyone realizing that the political system doesn't work for them, no matter who gets elected. Oh, sure. But then you arrive in the libertarian camp and, who do you vote for then? Well, I don't know. I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's a really an either or um, choice you have to make. You could choose to do any number of things, right? Like we're both creative guys. We, you know, you could come up with other ideas. I think I'm more on the uh, the lifestyle side of it now. Like I'm just seeing more and more often. Like there was this great Steve Jobs. Um, clip from like 1985 and he's sitting in his office and they were like if you were given an opportunity to talk to kids you know what would be your advice to young people Mm -hmm. he was basically like the thing you got to realize about the world is everything you see is designed and enacted by people that are no smarter than you are right and that is it means a couple of different things it means that like you have the opportunity to change stuff Mm -hmm. because um, you have the facility to do it. And number two, you have the um, ability to be empathetic to the people who are in charge because they're not miracle workers. Um, and I don't know, he kind of was, was framing it as like a rallying cry for people who are feeling disenfranchised or feeling like un... Um, satisfied with the way things are it's like our responsibility to do something about it to change it so when we're unhappy with like the transit plan in toronto our own little corner of the world 
It's like come up with a better one and start telling people about it. You have the internet now. The channels are wide open. You have this, the exact same access to the, the same medium as Rob Ford does or Olivia Chow. Start advocating the things that you care about and brick by brick, drip by drip, start collecting um, support for it. And that's how things change in, in the modern world, I think. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I mean, it indirectly, it made me think that of this, just this Horatio Alger myth, mm-hmm. I mean, which that kind of sounds like. I mean, obviously, it's true. It's true in a certain sense, but it's kind of a half truth. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, anyone who succeeds in life has to have that ideology. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you don't try, you're not going to succeed. That's obvious. But of course, that approach is validated to anyone who took that Somebody approach and then succeeded. succeeded. Yeah. Right. But they leave, they have no experience of trying and failing. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think I agree with what you're saying, but people have to. When you're contemplating going out there and... And this is still, unfortunately, at the age of 33, still something that I feel kind of on the fence about. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know. I guess I have maybe one more year to kind of make up my mind about it. But um, you really need to make real for yourself that possibility that you will fail. Oh, totally. And in fact, the the likelihood that Mm -hmm. you will fail. Because, I mean... The number of people who succeed at any given thing is relatively small to like compared to how many people. So, and when I say make that real for yourself, I don't mean just like agree with me mm-hmm. saying this on the podcast, but picture yourself, this is what does it for me. Picture yourself at Christmas <laughs> with all your relatives and you are the loser at the dinner table <laughs> for the rest of your life. If you're cool with that, then you probably have what it takes to succeed, I guess. But I, I think that I, I agree with you that like failure is definitely the part of the thing that you got to get used to. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, like if you listen to the, the Seth Godin stuff, he talks about how like it, it, that is the fuel. Like the people who succeed, the reason that they're higher up the totem pole is they failed more than you. Mm. It's a failure contest. The more you um, take risks and the more you go back to zero and start to reassess, get new data, all of that stuff, that's what puts you the, the, the little bit ahead next, next round. You know what I mean? Oh, isn't and, that encouraging? I should buy more of Seth Godin's books, coincidentally. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, for instance, like, uh, you hit the re- restart button by going mm-hmm. back to university, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. When you come out of university the second time, you're at a higher level of understanding and perspective than you were when you first came out of Sheridan. Right. You're at a higher level of maturity. You know, have more background in how like the world works. All of that stuff mm-hmm. is cumulative. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And um, I think if you make a, a comparison to like um, painting, for instance, mm-hmm. right? There's nothing in the world of like fine art when it comes to like skill that's not something that some people just can never achieve, right? There's a there's a certain level of like practice and tricks that you pick up over time that some people will escalate and um, pick up those tricks 
and tactics much quicker, more quickly than others. But given enough time and practice, anybody can become proficient at moving a paintbrush and mixing colors. That's not really where the art is happening, right? right? I right. think we can agree on that. Yeah, it's tactics, right? It's a it's a, a suitcase of tactics that you had to assemble in order to be able to do a painting, right? I feel like everything is that way. Like whether it's learning how to make a corporate speech, learning how to like make eye contact and shake somebody's hand, learning how a martial art, learning how to swim properly. These are all just skill sets and tactics that if you fail at them, it's just exposing a hole in your game that needs work, right? Like there's no reason why you can't emulate what's happened. I feel like you left out the art. Hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I don't think intentionally. The, yeah, but because I mean, if you want to be an artist, I mean, I agree that if you want to be a successful quote unquote artist mm-hmm. in the sense that people call you an artist and they pay you, mm-hmm. that's largely a, me- a measure of practice and tactics in terms of like publicity and networking mm-hmm. and stuff. And I was talking to Dean earlier today and he was saying something which I felt from my previous art experience, but it, with reference to his band, mm-hmm. that it's about 20, 25% mm-hmm. music and the rest hustle networking and, and sort of hustle. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's you're still in the art business. And I think the what the art is, is that kind of intangible idea, new idea or new perception that you're offering. Mm-hmm. You can learn painting ability and you can learn how to be an excellent businessman. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can learn how to think really originally. Although I th- I would suspect that that decision gets made for you by your parents in terms of how they raise you like to some extent. But that I think is maybe a third, the third leg of the table, I think. Yeah, um, for sure. And what what I was what I kind of meant was okay. There's two things like separate art from success for okay. a minute. Mm-hmm. It's like when you're talking about like if if I ended up being um, the poor person out of my family, right? right. Like mm-hmm. and between uh, James and Jillian, I definitely make less money than the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of I kind of know what you mean. I think that like. If you're talking about like financial success, well, that's just a tactic. There's there's a number. It's easy to make a lot of money if all your goal is is to make a lot of money. Like there is a, a weird kind of shoehorning that happens with artists where they're very stubbornly trying to make and monetize a certain path that they've enjoyed or that they prefer. Yeah, and that is a hard thing to do in the world. Like mm-hmm. it's you can't convince the world that something is worth something when they don't have a value to it. Mm-hmm. You know, and you get a lot of like resentment among art students who want to change the world that we're in and have it become this new place that values all art artistic expression as being um, as being relevant and being important in the world mm-hmm. when they could be spending their money on Maseratis or vacations right. to Cuba. Or and that's whatever. hard because I'm not going to buy your painting. Yeah, ex- of that. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then. Uh, the the second uh, other thing I was going to say about art is I feel like there's there's all sorts of people who are middling at any any job. You can be 
a pretty good carpenter and make a living. You can be a pretty good painter and make a living. Mm -hmm. Every so often, there's people who arrive at that little intangible thing like you were describing, the art side of it, mm -hmm. where they do something transcendent with whatever interests they had. Mm -hmm. And you end up having, you, you transcend into a completely different category where they become the celebrity of whatever their industry is. You know, Homes on Homes, the celebrity architect, or Jamie Kennedy, the celebrity chef, or um, blank ice skater, or, you know, there's there's celebrities in every genre of, of yeah. human interest. Mm -hmm. And I think that where that comes from is, like, the art side of it is, I also believe, a tactic, but it's there's, there's largely luck involved, right? Like, some people just, they're in the right place in history, and... Yeah. Um, the world shines the spotlight on them and they get a boost from that. Right. But that's it. You have to account when you're before any of this, when you're kind of just weighing your options, you kind of touched on two things there. One is that you have to weigh in the fact that at least 50% of this is just your environment and being mm -hmm. in at the right, in the right place at the right time. And the other is that there are middling people mm -hmm. in any pursuit. And you can't know whether or not you're one of those middling people. Mm -hmm. You probably are. Mm -hmm. In which case, you're going to ruin your life by trying to be anything more than middling. Unless you really don't care about money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, There's no such thing so, as a stuttering artist. That's, that's the thing that, that I've learned in the last couple of years. It's like you can't be the brave, generous you can't like make work from the brave, generous place that does exciting stuff. If you're worried about your personal safety and losing your house and stuff like that, it just doesn't work. You kind of have to though. That's kind of the challenge, right? I think that it's much easier to make those kind of brave, generous expressions when you're not personally worried. Like technically because we're in Canada, there should be no working artists that have that concern. You're not going to starve to death. Like well, you're talking about a very right. like kind of middle class thing with just being. I don't think that's the concern. Mm -hmm. It's not the fact that you don't make money. It's the fact that you love your family, mm -hmm. and it hurts for your fam for your family down. to be disappointed in you, mm -hmm. and to like let them down. And your family cares about this kind of stuff. Yeah, you can like disagree with it, but I think I don't know. For anybody who has a good relationship with their family, it's hard to say I don't give a damn what like my parents think or my family thinks of me. Yeah. And maybe that's what you need to do, and maybe that's what Freud was talking about when he said people need to kill their fathers or something. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Good old Rick. Yeah, exactly. I, I could never. My dad is like my... He's like my Alfred. Yeah. But... Uh, you know, it's that's hard to do. So I think it's it's not anything as easily. Um, what's the right word? You can't make fun of it as easily as to say that person only cares about money and that's mm -hmm. why they're a coward and that's why they won't reach their dreams. Mm -hmm. It's like love gets intermingled with mm -hmm. this. Yeah, I agree. I don't, I'm not on the uh, the the other side of that. I, I think that um, for me, what's been helpful is just the idea that something sometimes maybe you can't monetize your art but that doesn't mean that it's not valuable you know right 
uh, Van Gogh sold what one painting his whole life? Why did he sell one? Right, kind of yeah, thing. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it it makes it um, no less a, a powerful like expression or, or worthy. You know, I think that um, for anybody who is having under the stressful situation where they're trying to shoehorn a living out of the personal expression, that separate it. You know, there's nothing wrong with getting like a job and doing stuff as a hobby or whatever it is. Yeah. Or working two days a week at a... Once something becomes a hobby, I think it's it will it will become increasingly harder to dedicate yourself as much as you would probably need to to reach that kind of transcendent level that you're talking mm-hmm. about. Because time is involved in I that. guess a better way of putting it was, okay, like Werner Herzog was giving advice to young filmmakers mm-hmm. and among like the artistic disciplines the pursuits film is is definitely the most difficult to enter into just because like the startup costs are very high mm-hmm. um he was basically saying he's uh, you know casually he's he's you must you must make your film you must not let anything stand in your way he's like if money is a concern Take the worst job you can think of. Get a job in an asylum. Get a job at a slaughterhouse. Pick something that no one else wants to do. And take that job and work for two years. And then take the money and make your film. There's nothing more to it than that. He's like, and do not worry about spectacle. Don't try to make something beautiful. Try to make truth. Mm. You know? <laughs> and all of that is like such good advice, right? Because... Mm-hmm. There can be a whole like bundle of excuses that open up for artists like as soon as they say like, well, I can't, you know, I could make, you know, a really great painting if only I had linseed canvas and like the right kind of Windsor Newton oils, but they're, they're too expensive. I'll never be able to afford them. Right. Oh, I could make something amazing if only I had a giant studio space and someone would give me $10,000 grant from blank, you know, they... They they're picking the art and they're deciding that they're going to choose an art that has these natural limitations to it. And one thing that's crazy is like as soon as you put the priorities in a different order and you say like truth is the priority, passion is the priority, mm-hmm. honesty is the priority, suddenly that opens up all sorts of different mediums where like maybe it can be expressed in a in a letter maybe it can be expressed as a photograph maybe it can be expressed as just going out on the street and yelling at the the people like a manic street preacher you know there's all sorts of um things that can happen as soon as you get rid of the excuses and start getting down to the meat of like spreading ideas well yeah i agree that there comes a point i guess probably that point is 34 years old jesus if you're not, if you are not, oh, sorry, I need to take this test. <laughs> this might be Deanna. Oh, God. Yeah. She says, are you recording the podcast? We are. You're just about to get into Jesus year. Yeah. The importance of the Jesus year. Jesus Christ was dead and alive again by 33. <laughs> Allegedly. Okay. I just... Maybe I'll put this on vibrate. Just, yeah, just turn it off. Well, I can't turn the, it off. The world's not going to need Todd Julie for the next hour. I can't turn off Deanna. <laughs> but <laughs> impossible. Yeah. With so, this face. So, uh, 
what am I saying? Yeah, by 34, I guess if you haven't made the decision to just go for it, you should stop talking like you're going to go for it. Mm-hmm. I think because it's irritating for the people around you after a certain point to mm-hmm. hear somebody talk as if they're doing something forever and ever and not do it. Yeah. Um, so I'm conscious of that. So I may have to give that up. Walk soon. the walk or just yeah. change I will either postures. Ha- I will either, either have to walk the walk or stop with a lot of my uh, bombastic posturing. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see how that goes. I, yeah. Again, I would just restate that. Uh, but what you're saying doesn't really discount any of the stuff that we brought up before. Yeah. Right. I yeah, mean, there's like a, I there I are excuses. And I think, I mean, maybe because people are afraid to admit the real reasons, which are, could be some of the ones we discussed, they make other excuses, which are actually not as compelling, which are like the kind of things that you talked about, like, oh, I don't have the right canvas or the right uh, materials or, and even in film, I mean, it's not that expensive. You know, like, I mean, do a dialogue movie, you know, like, didn't those guys make that uh, time travel movie for 300 bucks? It would cost more than $300. That's okay, probably... so let's say it costs a thousand dollars, right? Like it could be done if you're like at all willing to sort of tailor your project to your material circumstances, which if you really want to do what you want to do, then you then you will do. Yeah, that's totally the the message that I was trying to get at. You made the concise university. I am a professional of concision. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. But I should. I'll say again. Like I totally sympathize with anyone who decides to like, totally wuss out. Yeah. Because it's still a very real possibility for me. Yeah. Alan Moore made the great analogy to um, going to see like the artists in the previous century. If you're in medieval times or in the Victorian era and you had that like spirit of adventure and that curiosity of, of what is what exists beyond the horizon, mm-hmm. you would become a sailor, mm-hmm. you know, and the thing that he goes on the rant that he does in Mindscape is he talks about the difference between the previous era in the modern era is if you wanted to become a sailor in the Victorian era, there was a number of like practical tactics. There was academies and things that you could learn how to swim, learn how to tie knots, go on the boat, and uh, you're prepared for the danger that is very prescient, that's very real. Mm-hmm. Like heading out into the unknown is not uh, safe sailing. You mm-hmm. might end up drowning. The mm-hmm. same the same um, warning is given to young artists, right? Like your parents tell you when you come out of uh, high school, if you go to art school, you, you probably won't make any money. Uh, yeah. You know, this is a risky thing. Mm-hmm. And it's that spirit of adventure and that curiosity that takes people there anyway. And I think that like the thing that has to happen um, next, I think, is to be able to give people... Um, the solace and like the exit strategy to say like there's no harm in failing like that it's a very um, important kind of um, part of like the modern era and uh, the way that the internet teaches people it, embracing that that kind of instinct where it's okay to fail and change and reinvent 
is a very important part and very current, like for the 21st century. I mean, how many... Um, it's a very geopolitically interesting point. Mm-hmm. How many? How different would the world be? Like you imagine a new breed of leadership that comes through that's very honest. No, I just right? mean it'd be very funny for this kind of thinking to come into vogue as America's position in the world is getting weaker and weaker. Mm-hmm. For get used to losing. <laughs> oh sure. Well, the way Ilya puts it, right, it's just mm-hmm. that like there's a lot of downward pressure. You know, unions are always complaining about pressure for them to give to roll back pensions and things like that um the middle class is uh, is quote unquote under attack and and all these things mm-hmm. the way Ilya, from his worldview is just that like there was an enormous bubble that happened after world war ii where north america was able to like prosper way more than the rest of the world mm-hmm. like from this mm-hmm. lack of competition like europe being destroyed and north america having all the factory support Mm-hmm. Um, and now that the rest of the world is rebuilt, North America needs to come down a few pegs so that the nations that are ridiculously poor can raise their standard of living. Like the world's balancing out a little bit. And th- I'm a little skeptical of that because I'm not sure if it's oh if the money is really being distributed in that way where mm-hmm. we our standard of living is coming down so that the standard of living of others can rise i guess there's inevitably a bit of that because rich chinese businessmen need office towers and stuff like that but i don't know that would have to be examined closely i think and also it kind of describes the success of the west initially as a kind of law of nature or like something that people had no part in Mm. but uh I guess going back even further, like, to the rise of the West in Europe, I mean, people talk, people talk, like, about China, like, because they have a huge population, it is inevitable that they will rise and be sort of top dog geopolitically, Mm -hmm. but the West always had a smaller population than China or a bunch of other places. I mean, and, like... Modern banking, I think it started off in Italy and then moved to like Holland. People who are Dutch, are they from Holland? This yeah. always confuses me. Yeah. So like Holland. Holland, the Netherlands, England, Dutch, it's all the same. Yeah, thing. these are all really small countries and like they didn't rise on the basis of their growing populations. They rose on the basis of innovations and finance. And, create, and their ability and, to be homicidal. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, everybody has that ability, yeah, right? Or, I mean, at least it's convenient for me as a privileged white male to think so. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just isolating it to the innovation of the West, this is one of the real reasons why they rose to power. So that lets us off the hook pretty easily i think to just think of it as a numbers game and because they have a larger population of course they're going to prosper it's i think it's a combination of numbers um butting up against the cultural trends where you can't keep secrets anymore and the free flow of information makes it easy to figure out how to start up a factory how to build a cell phone all of that kind of stuff is is open and i think that all that means is that we have to now Sorry. i feel like I don't know we've 
our personalities have switched, but I, I feel like all that means is we have to keep innovating. We can't rest on like our past accomplishments. Oh, totally. You know? And I mean, the West really, I mean, the West still invented the internet, which is a long time ago, I guess, when you think of it in terms of your lifetime, but is not that long ago in, on any kind of historical timeline. So mm. there's nothing yet that would lead me to believe that the West is incapable of innovating. I've, although I listened to a really good lecture by Arnold Toynbee, on or Arnold Toynbee, not by Arnold Toynbee, but he was this, uh, I guess, professor or intellectual of some kind who wrote like a series of book on books on the rise and fall of civilizations. And he compared basically like every civilization that has existed on the basis of if you look at things in terms of the life of our species, mm. all civilizations like ancient Sumeria and America are actually relatively contemporaneous mm. on that scale. And thus they can, they can be compared. Yeah. But so it's really big history that he's talking about, but he just talks a lot about how in the decline phase of a civilization, one of the things that happens is the multiple strata of society break their contract with each other. They break the, mm. their bonds with each other. The elite decide that they no longer have as much in common with, let's say, other Americans as they do with some other elite in, let's say, China or wherever. Dubai. And the poor start to think of themselves simply as poor and not as American. Right. Or like, and I mean, my sensitivity would be that like, it's the rich who initially break this contract. Mm -hmm. But, and he says a number of interesting things, but I'll stop there because I think I'll probably like forget what I'm saying if I yeah. keep going on, but it's interesting. Well, I mean, it's a, the perfect example that comes to my mind is just seeing like why more Americans coast to coast aren't embarrassed and angry about the fall of Detroit. Like, why don't they have a kind of like nationalism and patriotism associated yeah. with like their, one of their economic and like industrial hubs completely falling apart and going to the weeds. Right. Right. Like, why is that being allowed to happen? And why isn't it a point of pride to like build that place back up? That's exactly it. Mm -hmm. And actually, when I was working in Aboriginal Affairs, one of the things that really excited me was I really didn't know much about the situation of Aboriginal people before. Mm -hmm. And I still know like only maybe a very introductory level about it. But the government is trying to kind of grant self-governance to a lot of Aboriginal bands right now in giving them the power to make lands, uh, laws, sorry, on their own territory and accept more responsibility for their own people. And I think it, it represents a real opportunity. I mean, obviously, there's they have self-interested reasons for doing this. Mm -hmm. But the First Nations represent, I think, a real opportunity for Canada because they have a corporate identity. Right. Even the chiefs, I would think, or uh, like the, the richest among them, right? I feel like they still consider themselves native or First Nations. And even if they you run a whole casino, like a lot of them, 
the the decisions are still made within this band council and they're still somewhat accountable to the less privileged among them. I mean, I'm sure that there's crooked people and mm-hmm. everything like that. But there's there is this corporate identity and, and it's the same as kind of like what I guess from an outsider perspective I feel like I perceive from China, which is that even the poorest among them believe in China and they believe in making China great. Mm -hmm. And I feel like once you have that corporate identity, you can do a lot really, really fast because you can ask people to sacrifice for the good of the collective. And that's something that that's the thing that worries me the most about Canada and the States and maybe the West more generally, although Europe, I I don't know. There's something about Europe that I'm optimistic about, Mm -hmm. but, uh, Canada in the States, it's just, it, I feel like you don't see that corporate identity and that's why nobody wants to contemplate even the smallest raise in their taxes for anything. Mm-hmm. You saw it happen in Toronto on like a, a smaller scale, right? Like during that, um, the Miller years, at least downtown, there was kind of a sense of civic pride. People were really enthusiastic about having conversations about what was possible in the city. Mm-hmm. And you can compare that to the Rob Ford years where all anybody can talk about is like the embarrassing anecdotes associated with Rob Ford. What's he been up to? Um, you can't help but hear pure people parrot his criticisms of this, of his own city mm-hmm. all the time. You mm-hmm. know, the, the subways, subways, subways refrain has, has been said by like Matt Galloway and stuff on Metro morning and things like these are people that used to be 100% in like the civic pride camp, Mm. but they've managed to like be completely derailed by a kind of like clown figure and all of the energy that they used to put towards envisioning a better place. They, they get it corrupted and they just end up being, uh, having stories about how embarrassed they are. You know, they allow one person, one politician to kind of completely change the the point of the conversation. Oh, you're really calling out Matt Galloway here. Yeah. Well, he, he does his best. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. He does his best. He, that, that, that whole format, that, that morning talk show format is so dated hmm. now. The, the kind of 30-second sound bites and like a, a world report where it gives you like the, the headlines from the you previous day. You should do day a 30-second sound bite. You should have a soundbite. (laughs) Mini-sode, mini-sode, recap, recap. Todd Julie, advice to starving artists. That sounds exciting. (laughs) How come I don't have a furry thing on my microphone? You don't get it until you invest in your own equipment. But this is your podcast. You got got kind of a good... There's a little spit protector thing. I don't know what the the foam microphone protector is is called. Maybe... You could give this recording to Dean or Lee and get them to put the bass up on my voice after. Oh, I can do that. Okay, good. I've learned all that. I had a, an episode with uh, Winston Hacking that didn't end up going on the internet because, like, he kind of chickened out. What he was like, don't don't post that. Yeah, like a week after the fact, he's he's kind of like, you know, that episode we did, don't put it on the internet. And I was right? Like, How come, man? He's like, I don't want it. I don't want it. I thought about doing that too. That kind of that kind of yeah. thing that happens. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't understand it, especially from the art community, where it's like, you guys are supposed to be peacocks. Come on. This is a <laughs> this is 
I think a very recent phenomenon. It cuts to that kind of self-censorship that's going on because of all this stuff with the internet and, you know, not only nude photos, but especially I'm really conscious of it because for me, in all likelihood, I'll end up in the public service. Mm -hmm. And so being caught um, voicing, you know, unpopular opinions like super unpopular opinions say on facebook or whatever it's it's a threat to your job or it's like a threat to a job you could get in the future yeah right i mean obviously if everybody thinks that way then we're completely doomed it's it's transitionary i think that you're definitely right to be um concerned about it for right now yeah. But looking forward 10 years, I think that it's not a concern. I think that, in fact, like the people who are going to have all the best jobs are the ones that have mm-hmm. the most material that's online. And the Once most you consistent. give me ultimate power, you'll hear what I really think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who goes up against the wall first? <laughs> Let's get into the dirt. Actually, all you would have to do is probably scroll for a half an hour down on my Facebook back to like 2008 or 2009. <laughs> but at least there I have some kind of a plausible excuse because I can be like, I was in art my school. Th- my thinking changed over time. I evolved like yeah. Bob Ray. Which I totally did. I totally did. And now I see the light for sure. <laughs> yeah. I have an interesting thought experiment that I give to a lot of people where I'm like, if you were a dictator, which kind of dictator would you be? I like asked you know, oh, what, are the choices? what are the choices well like you just have to ex- imagine what like the diabolical tyrant version of your own personality would be so like i'm gonna to say go- robespierre yeah he's great because he went full-on god king and you know marching parade floats down the, the square and and his intentions his, his intentions were so pure <laughs> which i really like he seemed like he really genuinely believed in the ideals of the revolution and they really and genuinely led him to kill all kinds of people. Yeah. So it's really pure story, which I like. And it's also so perfect that he ended up in the guillotine yeah. along with everybody else. It's great. I almost feel like there must have been a moment where they were loading him into the machine where he was like, this is right. This is good. I, I believe in what's happening. This has gone to its logical end point. Yeah. I'm proud of you all. You're proud <laughs> papa. And they cut off his head. Yeah, maybe. Is he, um, like, what kind of burial did they give him in uh, in France? Does he have a... Oh, I have no idea. I don't care. Papa's once you're, dead, once you're dead, I don't care about you. <laughs> oh, the, oh that was bad. You just edit that out. That's once not, you're dead, I don't not, care about that's you. I'm not gonna play. Well, that's, of course I care about you. I love you all. Yeah, kiss, kiss. But I wonder, like, does he have a kind of Jim Morrison grave, or like, do they put him in a? You know Mozart what? Now that you popular, say that, I want. Grave. I'd like to believe that he's in that Parisian cemetery with uh, Balzac and <laughs> and formerly Jim Morrison. Although they moved Jim Morrison, but I'm not sure. I really have no idea. Although. This, it, we're really jumping around here, but what I, it reminds me of uh, this one thing I thought, I saw a picture of, of, I guess, when the Berlin Wall fell and like a Lenin statue getting pulled down. Mm-hmm. And I really had a negative reaction to it. I was yeah. really like, that's part of your history. Mm-hmm. Like, why would you only want to have monuments of whatever the current thinking is on government? Like, it should be everything. It should be, I believe it should be illegal. 
to tear down those monuments. It should be mm-hmm. illegal for them to tear down that Saddam Hussein mon- monument in Iraq. Yeah. That should stand. I think the the concern among the winning side in like any kind of revolution is that there's going to be rollback. They're just trying to, to sweep all that shit under the carpet so that their enemy can't get a foothold again. But I agree with you 100% that like that's a part of the, the legacy of the country. And yeah. if you look at... Um, Something like, um, did you ever read about um, the reconciliation that was happening, I think, in Rwanda? Like, they were having meetings where different rival families had to get together, victims of the genocide and people who participated in the genocide. And they're like, we got to cut the beef here because Mm -hmm. this thing is going to go on forever if if we don't, like, draw a line in the sand and say, like, you know what? We're going to move on. Right. You know, we're the same people. Well, and I feel like that conversation is more likely to happen if you do as, you, as you're suggesting, where like people acknowledge that the past happened and yeah. that it's a part of the thing. And these are our own people that rose up and did all these bad things. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, I don't know. That's what I, th- I mean. I'm, are you supporting what they did in Rwanda or not? <laughs> because I'm definitely supporting it. Yeah. Reconciliation. <laughs> I mean, I think that, um, you just end up starting a new cycle of violence as soon as you decide that like half of your population are the boogeyman and they need to be exterminated. You just become like the new, the new bad guys. Yeah. And I mean, if you punched me in the face, I would want you to remember that. And I mean, I feel like we, I feel like we couldn't move past it until there was an acknowledgement. I mean, if you tried to like act like nothing had happened, mm-hmm. I would totally resent that. Yeah. <laughs> the victim? If the yeah, victim, I'm, victim? Yeah, well. Who's the victim? I'm the victim because you're punching me in the face. Oh, right. Yeah. And then I was like, I didn't punch you in the face. And you're like, that never happened. <laughs> you know? Let's move on. Yeah. It's a different day, Todd. I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> you want reparations? Yeah. Or I want to punch you in the face. Right. <laughs> or it's that or I want a statue of you punching me in the face is what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. And you want to be able to bring it up. And I want to point to it whenever I feel like it and be like, that was really Listen, unfair. I deserve a raise because I've been living under Jesse's tyranny for years. He just punched me in the face. Yeah. A while ago. That was 10 years ago, Todd. Jesus, am I going to be paying for this my whole life? Yeah. That's what I would like. In this hypothetical scenario, they uh, they talk to um, people who've had like abused um, relationships with their parents, mm-hmm. and like again, it, it comes back to like you remain the victim until like there's a, a level of forgiveness that goes through it until you forgive. Mm-hmm. It can end up like you can have situations where the person. It's been 25 years. Their dad is dead, but they're still under the thumb of that abuse. Like until they um, accept that, you know, some people are born to abusive households. Yeah. And it's not your fault and shit happened and you got to move on. Right. Yeah. I'm, it sounds good. I mean, I've never had anything but good times in noodle salad. So <laughs> I'm not speaking from a place of expertise here about this but uh, yeah but i mean from a historical perspective i think that you shouldn't try to erase your own history Mm -hmm. yeah even in the even in the most obvious case the case of like nazi germany Mm -hmm. i 
think that that Nuremberg space mm-hmm. and Bergstgaden, all that stuff should be maintained. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that it wasn't um, when West Germany was occupied, did they have control to make those decisions? Or would it have been like Western governments that are like, all right, first of all, we got to start this denazification. So let's yeah. get rid of all although, the propaganda. Although now that I'm hearing that, <clears throat> now I'm, I'm, I don't know. Maybe there's information I'm not privy to. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess they have to keep a lid on any kind of neo-Nazi resurgence. So maybe I'm completely wrong. A lot of, like Britain and the United States were very shaken up by uh, by uh, Nazis. Yeah, is it too hot? Should I open the door? Yeah. Okay, okay. I said to Deanna, yeah, you're on it. Okay, she said, are you recording the podcast? If you want to scroll back and get to that part. Then I said, yeah, you're on it now. Then she said, what? Exclamation, uh, question mark, exclamation point. What did you say? And now I'm saying, my phone rang. During the podcast. She's where you're going to talk about butt sex and stuff. I'm definitely not talking about that. (laughs) And I don't endorse sex before marriage. <laughs> Abstinence. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Fuck! I can't believe uh, I was watching the the latest poll thing that Olivia Chow was slumped down to twenty three percent or something like that. I heard that Ford is resurgent. It's the Teflon Mayor, Toronto's lovable scamp. Just when you. So many times, and even I like I call him the Teflon Mayor, and I but still you count him out. You think things have gotten so bad. There's no conceivable way that he could come back from this, and then he just comes back from it. Mm-hmm. Maybe he will be prime minister. Yeah, <laughs> which would be terrible because then I can never wear that T-shirt. Which one? Deanna's mom bought me a Rob Ford Proof Prime Minister t-shirt and those ones are selling and I think that's I mean that would be a great shirt to wear 20 years after the fact when he's out of a political career mm-hmm. but I'm not gonna wear it outside while he's like an active politician because I don't want anyone to mistake it for like actual support I imagine that there's probably a lot of leading um, political handlers like the guys behind the guys mm-hmm. that are paying very close attention to Rob Ford I think that you're going to start to see a more more credibility. Like originally, um, Sarah Palin was the invention of I forget his name. He there was this wordsmith in the Republican Party that rebranded things like um, global warming to climate change and other talking points where he was able to like rearrange the language to make the topic more lean more Republican or lean more right wing just okay. based on the, the words that people were using. Okay. Like uh, kind of how it's more positive to say you're pro-life versus like uh, anti-abortion. Right. Like one is like a positive kind of message. Yeah. Anyway, so this guy was behind 
um, as far as I remember, he was behind the idea to draft Sarah Palin to be the vice president for McCain. And I think what his initial instinct was there would be kind of a Rob Ford effect, like where you have this person who is like so strange that people can't help but talk about them all the time. Mm-hmm. And it immediately overshadows the talking points of the more boring candidates. And mm-hmm. so I wonder, like, if Rob Ford is reelected, if there's going to be a kind of a drafting of more freaks, but not like fake freaks, like legitimate freaks, people who have real problems. And you end up with like this idiocracy kind of scenario where like the pro wrestler is the legitimate candidate for... You know, president. The left wing needs Pee Wee Herman. The left wing needs an idiot of their own. Yeah. Yeah. Who's it gonna be? I don't know. A fucking cartoon character. That'd be that'd be something. We're not there yet. Homer Simpson? We're not there yet. CGI Homer Simpson? Is Homer Simpson Is he progressive? Is he left wing? (laughs) He's whatever the week calls him to be. Yeah, I don't week to week he changes from like being homicidal, slightly abusive to being, you know, dumb and lovable and a good husband to being, you know, slightly super villainish. He's able to to so smoothly morph into different characters, right? Yeah, I guess he's kind of a vacuous personality. I think with with the advent of like these CGI Tupac and CGI Michael Jackson, uh, there'll be a, a real push to try to bring back CGI Reagan, CGI FDR. I think I read that I read that there would at the next uh, Republican brouhaha there would probably be a holographic Reagan. You know where you read that? My Twitter feed, motherfucker. That was your Twitter feed. That was my Twitter feed. You should all subscribe to Jesse's Twitter feed. <laughs> can read many uh, interesting insights about techno-utopia and other topics. I mean, it's not that big of a stretch. Like, uh, you could acknowledge that there's political handlers that are making all the decisions anyway, and the figurehead is just going to be a a computer-animated amalgam of, like, all of your favorite leadership uh, traits. Who do you want your holographic leader to be? Uh, who's odd? He'd have to look like Paul Newman, be like handsome. Um, he'd have to be witty in a kind of uh, dry Chomsky type of way, and it'd be great if he was really funny. Like there hasn't been, there needs to be more funny presidents. Needs to be more funny political leaders. You know, I'm you really. Do you think that because we have Stephen Harper here? Then oh, you're like just, he's the worst. You're just drained for Zaz. Oh God, he's like old mayonnaise. That guy. Your <laughs> <laughs> Obama's shit talking. Oh Trump God, let's get off this. Let's oh, get off that. Oh man. Well, it was Obama that said it. I'm just saying he's a very serious man. <laughs> but Obama's like, uh, I think he called him a lump. I heard that. It's not very diplomatic. <laughs> Say something like that. Yeah. And there was there was very real uh there was very real uh tweets and exaggerated outrage that a a, a person of 
of high regard and in a position like Obama would have a human moment like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, maybe that proves my point that I was talking about earlier about people's need to sort of mystify their leaders or be mystified by their leaders. They don't, they don't want them to have these human moments. Oh, I mean, like, every country is different, and I think the more fascist the country becomes, the more they mystify and have, like, kind of an aura of um, invincibility around, like, the office of president, for instance, right? Before you said that, I was going to be like, and who, have you ever seen Harper have a human moment? No, that is a good. Well, he was on mm-hmm. that uh, Prairie Show, except or for that poster where he went to the Calgary Stampede and his clothes were too small. Yeah, and he had that great ten-gallon cowboy hat on. Yeah, that I, I wish I had a poster of that. I wish they would sell posters. What about of that. when he played the Beatles, a little keyboard? That was a bit more masterfully done. I mean, he was wearing a tailored suit and stuff. <laughs> Political theater. And baby boomers love the Beatles. This this is something that cannot be ignored. I've actually thought about if I ran for office of any kind about having to level with the baby boomers and admit that I also love the Beatles. I was born in 1981, <laughs> and so my musical tastes are not exactly the same as yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could run CGI John Lennon. For Prime how do you Minister. Th- how do you think that would go politically? To say that you don't really get the Beatles? Why well, they're okay. I mean, I like the they're good. Mm-hmm. I like them okay. But I like, you know, death metal and stuff. Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying that because the baby boomers are going to have less political sway. They're getting tired. That's a very optimistic thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to suck every dollar out of the healthcare until they live forever. Regina Keene. I guess we will still we'll still have to start voting though. We're part of the aging population too, which is always good to remind yourself. I'm not even replacing myself. Yeah, indeed. That's the that's the issue. Is that we're the, the end point. But there's a huge baby boom going on in Rossesvale, so maybe we'll figure out a way to turn things around. Right. Everybody's going to have three kids in under three years. If I do have a, if I did have a bunch of kids, it'd be funny to have like a whole bunch of Deanna's and it would be like that Apex twin video. Come to daddy. (laughs) (laughs) Running around at me. And you could wear a bob and her face. Me too. Yeah. (laughs) That's creepy. For the, uh, for the family photo. You just took it to a a new creepy level. (laughs) I just wanted to be in the video. As the only non Deanna. <laughs> the Wrangler. Yeah, kind of like you wouldn't see me in the video. I'm just experiencing the video around me. You're just some disembodied hands. I'm like the, I'm, I'm the, like the viewer. Mm-hmm. And then the video is the kids and Deanna. And stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, have, you, um, have you figured out the ins and outs of Ottawa yet? Have you, you found a new kind of like happiness in there? <laughs> or is it still like kind of the just the halls of wisdom like you're just in exile now sucking up information uh i like i've met a lot of people that i get along with made a lot of friends in ottawa Mm -hmm. some of them might even listen to this so you might break into a new market oh baby but uh ottawa is a city it's weird because it's it's 
really it's really sprawling. Mm. It's actually I heard Canada's biggest city in mm. terms of just how much Geography. land it occupies. Yeah. But it doesn't have much density. Mm-hmm. So to say that you're familiar with Ottawa, like no, I'm not familiar with Ottawa. I'm familiar with Bank Street, yeah, and a, f- a few other streets, <laughs> but everything is so spread out. And the transit system, people complain about the Toronto transit system, but I'm going to stand up for it now because the Ottawa transit system is so much worse. <laughs> it's unintelligible. Yeah. Like there's just, there's no simple U and then line through it, like our subway grid. Yeah. It's just a whole bunch of different scattered stations. Spaghetti noodle. With buses, like, not going in a straight line, but just going on whatever serpentine route they happen to go on. And you basically have to have, like, a photographic memory of the entire city in your head to know where you're going. Are the drivers super patient with you? Do they acknowledge? That's another funny thing. Every time, (laughs) almost every time I've asked an Ottawa... um, bus driver like where how to get where i want to go they act really confident and <laughs> send you the wrong say way. a different thing say the wrong thing and take send me to the wrong place <laughs> and this and you're the only person on the bus they're just laughing they're like, <laughs> this happened to me with deanna the first time she came over and the weather was bad it was raining mm-hmm. we were trying to go to the movies to see i think gravity mm-hmm. and the guy like tells us to get off about 20 minutes from the theater in the middle of the rain oh just take your car the rest of the way yeah the fuck and you talking of about? course deanna deanna knew like she probably knew before we even got off the bus that something was wrong but you know <laughs> spidey sense but if somebody gives me an order i'm just following it so i got off the bus and then we we're totally we we're in a real mess and i thought maybe we could get there uh, if we walked fast, so I'm trying to like walk fast, trying to drag Deanna along, but like her, her like he, she gets this look like the world is really, she's a little person and she's being asked to shoulder so much <laughs> and she's not complaining, <laughs> but it's too much, right? So I look back and she just wanted to see a movie. Todd. She, yeah. She, all she wanted was to see this movie and now she's like frozen it's raining, the day is ruined, and it's pretty much my fault. Even though she would never say that. I mean, she knew that it was the bus driver's fault, really, but I felt like it was my fault. And so it was terrible. But then we went to see Gravity the next day. It was fine. <laughs> I had a similar story where I went to Ottawa and got lost on the bus in the midst of a rainstorm with Ilya Schwartz. Yeah. We went out to Ottawa for that animation festival. And we got lost and we're on the bus and stuff. And we finally made it to the thing like three hours late. But I was wet and tired and completely not in the mood for fucking cartoons. (laughs) So I'm sitting in this theater. And for one thing, don't go to the animation festival. Oh, my. There's only so many cartoons you can watch. I remember the first criticism that my dad made of my post Sheridan work when I was doing like uh, CGI music video stuff. Mm -hmm. He's like, Jesse people can only watch about a minute and a half adults can only watch about a minute and a half of cartoons you're gonna figure you gotta figure out some way to change things up (laughs) this is is only criticism of my work right since and um so i was in the theater and i was i was thinking about that i was like this is the most miserable i've ever been (laughs) right like 
after two hours of cartoons, it makes you can't follow the narrative in any th- of any of it anymore. It's just high squeaky voices and bouncy bouncy lines going across the screen. And I was starting to feel like I was going to be sick. So <laughs> I, I left the theater and Ilya followed me out. And we were sitting in like the statue park uh, in around Parliament. You know how like there's like Parliament Hill and there's a bunch of like statues of famous Canadians in around that area mm-hmm. sitting on benches. And Ilya's like, so what do you want to do instead? And I dug around in my backpack and I found a bunch of Oxycontins that I had gotten from Jesus the Christ. <laughs> I was like, well, we could just eat Oxycontins and hang out in Ottawa. He's like, okay. <laughs> he was game. So we ate a bunch of Oxycontins and like slumped on benches and things and <laughs> wandered around Ottawa. That place really shuts down after 8.30. <laughs> There's not a lot of action going on Parliament Hill. Well... First, let me say that I'm shocked <laughs> that you would deface, engage in this kind of behavior. But uh, also, yeah, totally shuts down really super early in Ottawa. And the funny, another funny thing about Ottawa is that every single bar in Ottawa mm-hmm. is an Irish pub. What the hell's up with that? So it doesn't matter. Like people ask, where do you want to go? And I'm like, what is it? does it matter? Does it matter? We're going to an Irish pub. That's the only option. No Scottish pubs in honor of John A. McDonald. Oh, ooh. There is a John A. McDonald pub. But it, it, what's the difference? Between Scots and Irish people? Between Scottish and Irish pubs. Um, well, when you say like it's all Irish pubs, if there's a Scottish pub, then that breaks the pattern. But what I'm saying is practically, what is the difference? Oh, nothing. Nothing. What's the difference right. between an Irish pub and a and a pub, an English pub? Right. The kind so, of beer that I guess the beer that they serve, like it would be primarily. They all Guinness. have thirteen dollar hamburgers, right? <laughs> yeah. Can we agree on that? Yeah. So they're all British Empire pubs. Nice. Um. So yeah, there's not as much. Um, there's not as much variety, which is another one of the ways that I'm torturing Deanna. Mm. Yeah. I think that it would be very interesting if there was some sort of push to make public areas in all of the embassies where each embassy was expected to have their own little drinking establishment attached to it. Where it's like, you're in Ottawa, there's embassies for all of the countries, there's an expat usa bar like attached to the american embassy yeah they all have events but uh that would be neat if uh that's not a bad idea you have like a continuous cable feed of like what's going on on television in that Mm -hmm. country yeah the ambassador comes down every so often makes announcements about like the football game's about to start that's not a bad idea go backers yeah i think that it would it would do a lot of uh, you get a lot of diplomacy done if there was places like that instead of boring offices that you had to sit around in. You'd, they're probably also like it would engender a lot of competition, like mm-hmm. so that the bar would. Pro- I mean, the prices would end up being dirt cheap. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe even free, like at Steam Whistle, where like you go in with some dogs and they give you free beer. Oh, totally. Because then people will have a better opinion of you and your country right so it would almost be like a miniature world's fair too because you could show off lifestyle stuff like what an officially sanctioned american hamburger looks like and what their 
depiction of like beauty is like their staff has to be a, de- a depiction of what would they- both just be a gigantic fat person <laughs> <laughs> they're not fit like canadians <laughs> well the canadians we have our demographics are sloping the, the same way quiet <laughs> the i'm getting big you yeah yeah you're working on that gorilla body yeah, I totally lost all my progress because last year, like, come October, I had to totally stop because mm-hmm. the work at the Masters was too much. But ever since uh, May, I've been getting back into it. Nice. So I think probably what actually happened is I probably am just about recovering to where I was in October now. For those of you unaware of the backstory, Todd and I always had a plan to become powerful 40-year-olds. Um akin to the transformation that uh train spotting star what's that guy's name Trent Reznor? no 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 oh. <laughs> the guy from rome that was on train spot he was a skinny guy soccer player on train spotting oh, lucius verinas lucius verinas i would have gone with the trent Reznor reference or trent Reznor, skinny guy in the 90s and then now he's beefcake big uh, gorilla 40 year old that's got to be the arc yeah because it's that or you get towards. fat Totally. I feel like, or f- maybe not fat, but flabby if you don't exercise. Mm-hmm. You still get wide. You still get thick. Yeah, you'll still get the barrel chest. So you might as well be buff. Yeah, in that George Foreman way, you, you keep your punch. You know, you're you're a bit soft in the middle, but like you got that good punching arm. It's interesting, though, because it, I feel like we're just in those years where we hit the gym. Because if you think about it, there was a workout craze. In the eighties, in the eighties, when our parents mm-hmm. were kind of our age, yep, and Aerobics. now, yeah, now there's a workout craze again, when we're at the same age. So you could almost predict, I mean, when the next good time to invest in ex- an extreme fitness franchise would be. Oh, yeah. How that's that. That's that. Boom, bust, and echo. Uh, David K. Foot stuff mm. yeah. and then fashion also changes around the same time too right like you see the the switch over from skinny pants to like baggy pants that happen around the same time that like baby boomers can't really fit into their clothes anymore so like it do you think i'm trying to in my mind equate the current it, I actually, I don't know if this is current. You'd be a good person to ask. But uh, is that look with a girl, like, is the look like of dressing like a librarian still fashionable with girls with oversized glasses? I wouldn't be the one to ask. Really? I thought you... Um, I'm trying to equate that with some period in the baby boomer timeline. Mm. And it, the thing that's coming to me is the, the way the girls were dressing in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. I wonder if that would be sort of equivalent. Although they, those girls were wearing short shorts. They weren't really dressed like librarians. Mm. The thing that's going on now, uh, and I'll immediately date myself because like I don't really know what's going on now, okay. but it seems like things have been trending towards androgyny over the last like five years. Like Tilda Swinton? A lot of like kind of guys and girls, you know how in during the 90s when grunge was happening, guys and girls were basically wearing the same thing. They were wearing the the same like oversized like lumberjack shirts and muscle shirts and torn up jeans. Mm. The same thing is kind of happening over the last like five years, but with different stuff. 
like where women and men are wearing like the same kind of toques and like denim and white shirts and baggy kind of like mm. uh, carefree. Did, did you clothes, know that when if you, if you talk about this, mm. you're basically only talking about Toronto? Oh, totally. Because even going to Ottawa, different story. Mm-hmm. Like hipsters don't exist out there mm. yet. There's a trickle down effect from the city centers. Yeah, but then that won't be hipster. Like when by the time it reaches Ottawa, it's not going to be hipster anymore. Like people there just wear pants. Because what's strange shirts. is if you go to somewhere like Hamilton, right? Mm-hmm. And ten years removed, you see people with faux hawks, like bros with faux hawks and tribal tattoos, and uh-huh. you go like, "Oh, I remember when that was." I wonder if it's. I think it might be more than just a measure of time, though. I think it's also a measure of the kind of careers that are located in your city. Because mm. Toronto has a lot of creative industry where I think there's an advantage to... There's a real advantage to looking like you're up on the latest trends. Yeah. Whereas in Ottawa, since it's mainly public servants, mm. there's a real... I, there's an advantage to looking as normal as possible. Like you don't want to be up on the latest you don't, trends. You don't want to be too up on the latest trends, maybe. You're too unpredictable. Yeah. Which is fine with me because I try to dress fairly normal. Just because I I like the... I, at this point in my life, like I used to dress crazy when I was a teenager or even later. But... Uh, at this point, normal. It reminded me immediately of that scene from uh, Zodiac, where they're interviewing the kids who saw the Zodiac walk away. Oh, from how did he look? look? Normal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I'd rather. I guess in my own fashion sense now is kind of like I'd rather be like that's a good-looking guy wearing clothes rather than like the clothes wearing me yeah well that's kind of how i've always felt like i've always been uncomfortable with the idea that people can prejudge pretty quickly like where your beard precedes you right like like that's that guy with the beard yeah that kind of thing um because i've always felt like you can't really tell much about a person by the way they look and um it's i don't want to participate in that culture where i'm wearing like expressive stuff that's supposed to be um an embodiment of like what my ideas are but can you really escape it i think the way you dress is still gonna be i mean even your choice not to engage in that is kind of like an engagement with it because you're still reacting against it but i but i have such a casual relationship where i kind of have a very vague uh, touch point to like what's going on you know i'm kind of with it just enough that people don't think i'm weird right so i don't feel like there's a lot like you're you can... still wearing plaid yeah because it's what you can buy in the store it's right. it's available yeah right so phony. <laughs> <laughs> like if you wanted to go a step further you'd end up in the weird category again like if you decided like my my high school friend charles um decided that like he wanted to do that Einstein or Seth Brundle thing where like he just bought uh, 26 pairs of the same white shirt and same black pants yeah and same uh, like 10 pairs of the same shoes and he just wore the same thing every day right right clean pressed 
new new version of it, but it was the same thing every day. I'm kind of kind of doing that. Yeah. Like it's not exactly the same, but I basically wear blue jeans, black t-shirts, or I'll I have dress shirts that are different but not so different and pants that are like either black or gray. Mhm. So it's a limited wardrobe. But I have to say that I engage in that kind of thing because I do like try to dress like project an aura of competence. <laughs> because if I don't if the clothes don't, I don't know what else is going to do it. When, when it's uh, what's competent about the black shirt that you were able to Oh, the black shirt not so much. That that's more like uh like um the suit shirts but the black shirt is just mainly because i there's a particular scene i think in the dark knight where mm-hmm. uh christian bale bruce wayne is wearing like a black t-shirt and suit pants i believe and, and i was like, that, like he looks like a guy who can get that, shit done it's a good look that's a really good look <laughs> so that's kind of when i feel i guess when i feel most like batman yeah yeah i love that uh that classic um politician trick whenever they want to make a speech to like working class people they take the suit jacket off and they roll up the sleeves and it's like a psychological signal that i'm ready to get out of business i always roll up the sleeves i do too yeah and i wonder if like subconsciously it's 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 because that's what's going on It's because i am always ready to get down to business (laughs) (laughs) there's never a point where i've felt like leaving the house where it's where i wanted to like roll down the sleeves where I felt it was appropriate. Like, when I, was I wasn't sc- ready to get down to business. <laughs> when I was in high school, yeah. and I wanted to be like a vampire, because uh-huh. like, I was reading those <laughs> those Anne Rice novels, I, I had a shirt, which you probably remember, because I still wore this shirt like pretty late in, with the big cuffs. in life. With those huge big cuffs, that purple shirt. But I would wear it, like I would unfold the cuff so that it would be more like the pirate cuff that like right. Lestat wears. So I'd walk around with like these undone cuffs that were like covering my hand completely. Because mm-hmm. um, I thought that'd be more like vampire-esque. Yeah, it's like the vampire has such charm and persuasion. Yeah. They don't need to roll up the sleeves to get down to business. Except just I think rhetoric. looking back, it's because I never got down to business <laughs> at that age. Never. And yeah. you you watch you watch interview with the vampire. They don't get down to business. They, they never, never work. Never get down. They to just business. drink wine and and kill people. Yeah, exactly. It's all pleasure. <laughs> yeah. So, I guess you can tell a lot. Yeah. I wonder, is there any superheroes that have the rolled up sleeves that you can think of? Did they ever I've go seen through like, like a I've new seen, version of Superman? I've seen Lex Luthor. Gonna... I've seen Lex Luthor do that. Hmm. Um, Superman. The new version of Superman wasn't he wearing like regular clothes? Yeah, because he wasn't quite Clark Kent yet. Hmm. Did it's he act- roll up his sleeves? Oh, that's so tough to say. Let's Google this. Yeah, I. You know what? I'm almost 100 percent positive that he did actually. The more, that, but I. But he wasn't wearing a suit because he wasn't a reporter yet. Right. Yeah. Hold on. Let's see what comes up when I type "new Superman." Oh God! It's all man. It's all. Batman I really Superman wish he was stuff. still wearing those red underwear. <laughs> I feel like his. It, tra- it kind of draws attention mind, to his mind. dick. Okay, I'm glad you said it. Yeah, yeah, because there you notice the lump more. <laughs> 
Or maybe that's just Henry Cavill <laughs> or Cavill. A civil? Ca- Cavizzle? Cavizzle or Ca- Cavazzle. <laughs> that's stupid. We, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you pronounce it Cavill. I was just being a jerk. <laughs> what kind of fan are you? Oh, here we go. This is a this is slightly homoerotic Superman with a t-shirt on and he does have short sleeves. That's not from the movie. No. Um no, I was looking you remember they rebooted Superman cuz they were worried about losing the there licenses. There it is. There it is. Right there. Uh No, above. Here. There. Up, rolled up sleeves. But that's some sort of t-shirt. That was really confusing. Uh, you didn't really ex- fully explain it. When they rebooted DC Comics with what they call the new 52. They did a couple episodes where Superman was just wearing jeans and a t-shirt version of his top where it was like shorts. They didn't stick with that, but it's no, they unfortunately not. Cause I, cause actually I kind of came around to it and I'll describe why. And then like a shorter Cape. (laughs) He had a baby bib. Yeah. But, and you know what? It's actually a picture of you wearing a Superman shirt when you're a kid that made me think of it. But I was thinking about this, and I was like, I wonder if what they're doing is trying to make him more relatable to, like, the five-year-olds who wear Superman t-shirts with, like, short capes by doing that. And, but despite the fact that that's really weird, that he would dress quite that way, those couple episodes where he did dress that way were really interesting because they kind of got back to what Superman was when he was first introduced, which I've read was more of kind of like a super Roosevelt. Right. Like he would do things like, um, force, uh, slumlords to like rebuild tenements and stuff. Mm. And he'd do a lot of social justice stuff within the city. Yeah. Um, and he was doing a lot of that stuff in the first two issues of the relaunch and kind of butting heads with larger powers because, you know, it's not really his place. Mm hmm. So that was really interesting. But then I think by the fifth episode, they like totally canned it and they jumped forward to when he has the full new Superman suit and he's fighting aliens and robots again. <laughs> and I totally lost Ironically, interest. Ironically, capitalist forces <laughs> encouraged them to bring it back to uh, alien fighting. Yeah. So I was disappointed because I was, I kind of wish they would have drawn that out for quite a while i it was a way that i hadn't really thought of like to make the character relevant again aside from my own thought that it's just like he should be approached more like the second coming of christ and like there should be like superman cults in metropolis and they should Mm. explore like the effect of on the citizenry of having a character like that around Mm -hmm. which is i mean other people have had that idea but 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 having him be like kind of a super roosevelt was also like i thought really interesting it definitely, it's definitely something that has become a problem. Like you watch the new crop of Marvel movies. Um, every superhero movie has the same plot now. They've scaled all of the conflicts up to ridiculous city destroying um, robot fights or yeah. alien fights. I don't like and comic book movies anymore. It used to be like what separated each of the genres. Like I didn't understand why Thor could have fans and Spider-Man could have fans and Batman could have fans and Aquaman could have fans um, until like I read a little bit about the backstories and like the actual stories that were appearing in those original comics. Mm-hmm. And what made them original is like 
oh, okay, um, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee have an idea about taking um, old um, Roman and Greek myths and retelling those stories with um, comic book characters. And they end up coming up with like Thor and Thor has adventures where he fights the other gods and stuff and Olympus and it, it's its own theater, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And then you have Aquaman who's like under the sea and he has his own theater. Mm-hmm. There was a trend that like happened post Batman 1989 or it may have been going, I don't have like too yeah, deep yeah. a familiarity with like stories, but it seemed like all of a sudden every comic book character had to come to New York city and had to somehow develop the ability to fly and had to fight some villain whose scope was to destroy the city. The mm-hmm. city was under threat. Like what made um, uh, Spider-Man comics originally like kind of quaint and, and interesting. It was just about jewel thieves. You know, you had these wacky jewel thieves. Like one guy's got electricity as his gimmick and another person can make like illusions and things. And Spider-Man is like a newspaper reporter who needs to like scrape by money to like afford to take his girlfriend out. And he's trying to foil these jewel thieves, right? It's a very quaint kind of like tick esque. Right. Story theater. But in the modern age, they always want to scale everything up to suddenly Spider-Man can pick up trains like Superman and he can fly through the air like Superman and he can. I think in the movies, there's there's almost like a market logic to when they make these movies to do that, which is that once you. They'll inevitably not be satisfied with the core fan base going to see the movie and they'll want to go after like this larger fan base that really doesn't know about the character or care. They just want to see like some blockbuster with a whole bunch of explosions Mm -hmm. or maybe they don't because the dark Knight was totally awesome and totally successful. Yep. So maybe it's like a totally misplaced conception of what even the mass public wants, but, or maybe it's just easier. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there's a lot, there's kind of a market logic to that. I mean, so they start to like soften the edges. I mean, even with the characters, you can see all of the, personality traits of the characters start to become basically the same in the movie like even batman become or wolverine is a great example yeah he's like he's supposed to be like an anti-hero who is always in danger of just like losing it and becoming like a beast that like can't separate right from wrong and or at least that's my impression but uh in the movie like they talk about this but I don't think I've ever once seen Wolverine do ever lose it and do the wrong thing or like he's become a beast in the newest one and in his rage. Yes, yeah, sometimes he has he night terrors, night terrors, and slashes the psychic the pillow or something. But uh, yeah, they always soften the edges to make him like more of a universal hero. Batman, same kind of deal. Like that's why I like that cartoon movie, The Dark Knight Returns because he is kind of a jerk and not much fun to be around. And that's what Batman is like, right? Mm-hmm. But I like I said this to one, this guy who was in my program, Paul, who isn't really a comic book fan, but like the movies. And he saw a little clip from that cartoon and he was like, no, I don't like this. Batman is a jerk. He's being a jerk. And I'm like, that's what Batman is like. He's tortured. But, he lost his parents. But they don't. They don't want to see that. <laughs> yeah, nobody wants that. 
can we make him hug a dog? Save a dog in the first first act? Or could he beat up a bunch of dogs? <laughs> <laughs> like in the Dark Knight. <laughs> could he be uh, subtly Republican? That would uh, play really well in this Occupy Wall Street environment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we really need to shore up support. There was a, a great jerky Batman scene in the dreaded... Uh, Batman and Robin, where I think before Poison Ivy is Poison Ivy, she comes up to Bruce Wayne. At oh, a party I know what you're going to say. Yeah. And she's like, Wayne Industries is deforesting um, this area and we need to save it. And Bruce Wayne's like, what's the line? People are. People come first, Miss Isley. He's like, people are more important than trees or something. Yeah. <laughs> she's deflated. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah, actually is kind of. Con- Consistent. Mm-hmm. Although I've kind of come up with a conception of Batman of my own, just through my innate need to like make him be like a hero that I could really get behind that has an angle on all his villains that's like larger than his villains. Which I mean, when he's Republican, like in the Dark Knight, the Joker kind of has an angle on him and the Joker becomes like the more sympathetic character in a sense because he's like the only philosophically honest character. You can read like a... Who's that guy? Uh, Zizek. He, he said the same thing in some article that he wrote about the movie. Mm-hmm. But uh, I like, I'd like to see him bec- like Batman become more of a Nietzschean character where he has a plan for society to transform beyond what it is now. Like he sees that the structures of civilization are crumbling and he sees the need for, and perhaps because like the Judeo Christian underpinning of capitalism, Mm. which is where it came from is not believed. And so there's no, there's no real ritualistic or like subconscious weight to the capitalist system. And so he tries to create a new one, like based on fear, Mm. like at least in his own city. Yeah. Like, so somebody who's trying to create their own new order out of a decaying order. Right. Like, that makes him, I think, more of a Nietzschean Superman. And more at odds with the real Superman who would, like, still, because the real Superman just does what he's told. Truth, like, justice, within, and the American Within way. the existing order. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's the way I would move if uh, I had all kinds of time on my hands and they made me president of DC. And it opens up all sorts of ideas about like if you're trying to build a culture around fear if that's one of the tent poles that's kind of making the whole thing work mm-hmm. then you almost need the rogues gallery in order to I thought would what I, what I thought would be cool is I kind of pictured Batman like almost like almost as if it's a new sort of Protestant reformation mm. so Batman would be Martin Luther Mm-hmm. And like the interesting thing about the Protestant Reformation is I have like a lecture series uh, about this, but they talk about Martin Luther, like he's a Protestant reformer, but he is not fighting for everybody's ability to interpret the Bible the way they want. Right. He thinks he has discovered the one truth of the Bible and he's like perfectly willing to tell like German rulers or whoever to kill people who disagree with his interpretation Uh, right so but 
at the same time, once he opens this can of worms for reform, other people with other other conceptions come out of the woodwork. And so I was picturing like Batman would be like Martin Luther, who starts this thing to try to restructure society with some kind of a psychological underpinning. But in doing so, this rogues gallery, who he considers to be his enemies, but who are really just the people most inspired by what he's doing, mm. are also like trying to take his message in the way they see it and build on it. And his fight is really to keep control of that message and mm. to keep a consistent sort of psychological theater in which to kind of hold Gotham together. Yeah, I like that because it, it, it takes it beyond these kind of villain of the week scenarios where each character is just a homicidal maniac and they're trying to kill a bunch of people mm -hmm. and instead puts the onus on the writers to make almost like a political agenda for each of the, the characters. Yeah, like and maybe is, not. they don't all have to be that way. Inevitably, there'd be people who would just be trying to take advantage of a, of a messed up situation, but at least a number of them. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the Joker and maybe Bane and maybe a couple other favorites. Poison right? Ivy. Yeah, Poison Ivy. Well, she's more of an eco I think you could do it with all of them. I think yeah, that they but all you, have you, a... Yeah, but you probably wouldn't want to, right? Because, mm -hmm. I mean, if you do anything too much, then it's like, oh, God. Like Politics it, again. Yeah, like it's still nice to have a variety because it makes it more real. But I think that would be my underlying sort of uh, matrix for a kind of new creative additions to the Batman mythology, if I was, if I was doing it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because the, the, the thing that I think needs to be acknowledged is that there's more than one way to write a mature graphic novel. Like generally like across the board whenever the mature label is put on something it means that there's going to be more nudity and violence and mm -hmm. that's like the limit of mm -hmm. adult um that's what's considered adult material when it comes to that thing mm -hmm. and wouldn't it be refreshing to have some of this material approached a little bit more uh, mature in the way that like the the concepts are more deep and more nuanced and uh they require a background in in uh, history and stuff like that in order to kind of wrap your head around it. Oh, I wouldn't want it to require it because they, they still have to be for kids, kind of, because that's the cash cow. Well, I, like we've talked before about one of the good things about Dark Knight was that it functioned as a blockbuster as well as having a deeper level to it. And mm. I think I would want to accept that challenge. I would want it to function in the way that I just described. But at the same time, part of Batman's theater of doing this is that he beats these guys up in front of people. Oh, and like okay. he does all these things. So you could still, I'm, I don't want to get rid of the Batmobile or get rid of the fights or anything like that. All those things should still be there and it should still function as like yeah, a Batman yeah, yeah, yeah. story. But I guess I don't this. associate any of that with being kids stuff. It's just interesting. Well, it yeah. It doesn't have to be, but yeah, that men of all ages love cars. Yeah. It's just a, it's a human thing. It's not a, a kid thing. Yeah, but I mean, I you'd have to keep that in mind. Like, this is still a comic book. And one of the great things about Batman is that you pick it up when you're a kid and it makes sense, but you can grow with it and it matures as you mature, kind of. Mm -hmm. You can have, like, a lifelong relationship with that character, which is unique, I think, among superheroes quite a bit. Yeah. And... It's something that's empowered by 
the the cultural shift that the internet's bringing about where like the fans are more in control now than they ever have been. Mm-hmm. There's a two-way dialogue going on about where these characters are going to be placed and what the direction of development is going to be in the future. Yeah. And actually the sort of business counterpart to that sort of story idea that I mentioned was I thought, why not have a Protestant Reformation in the way that Batman books are delivered? Mm -hmm. I mean, as long as you are not seeking to profit from the character, I think you can basically just come up with a Batman comic book and put it online as long as you're not selling. That's what Cory Doctorow did. His first book, um, Down Out in the Magic Kingdom, is all has all Disney trademarks through it. It's yeah. a sci-fi novel. Yeah. But because both his like politics and because uh, it's the only way to market something like that it was released for free yeah, yeah. i mean i thought it was really smart when <clears throat> when uh, nine snails who uh, yeah i was disappointed in the last album but uh back in the day when they had this website that had like a, a remix site where people could like post in their remixes of nine inch nails on the site and there would be like top ranked it was almost gamified yeah in a sense and I thought that was really smart because you're create. We've talked about this, but like you're almost creating a world where someone who loves Nine Inch Nails they never have to leave that. They never have to listen to anything that's not Nine Inch Nails. Mm-hmm. They can and, move in, and the fans are doing it for you. You're not even doing any work. Mm-hmm. I don't even. I don't understand why DC doesn't adopt that model for Batman. I'm sure there's a lot of people who just based on the possibility that if their story was popular enough it would then be published by DC and DC would give them a certain amount of money or whatever. Like, I'm sure you could have a thriving community of fan fiction that would probably be better than what they actually publish. The writing in Batman weeklies is not that good. I think that it largely comes from lawyers. I mean, they're among like copyright lawyers. They seem to have a really devout belief that you can spoil, um, an intellectual property without proper stewardship. Mm-hmm. Like Batman could somehow, after all these years, become a joke right. or not work be worth anything if they allowed it to spread like that. But I think it's totally misplaced. I think that uh, I mean, in the Protestant Reformation, I mean, after that happened, I mean, it. I think it enriched both the Catholic faith and Protestant reform. Like people knew more about their religion i think after that happened and were more actively engaged with it even catholics like i think catholics i believe they're allowed to read the bible for themselves now <laughs> anyone can <laughs> but i mean yeah, i mean it christianity is still a thriving religion and I, yeah i compare i love to compare the new testament to christianity's Batman thriving comics. religion has no center though and, and but, that's what they're worried about. Right. That, but does it need one? Mm, you know, not for the success of the thing to spread, but to monetize it and to keep DC up in their, their tall tower. I think that that's what they're worried about. They're worried about yeah. paying those. I guess cellul- what salaries. they need is an Edward Snowden <laughs> in DC comics. Somebody needs to set Batman free. So what I'm saying. But you can you can self publish a, a Batman thing. Like, I know you can. There's nothing stopping people. I'm just saying. But it would help, I guess. There's plenty if of fan there fiction. was a website that it would DC really if they DC spearheaded this with some kind of website where it could all be collected in one place and encouraged would be great. I think. Yeah, 
I was not impressed with their official DC Batman website, so I'm sure that the fans could build a better one. All that stuff is, yeah, way behind where it should be. Yeah. Not that interactive. Okay, yeah. well, we're over two hours, so... All right, it's we- become another Batman. Uh, so maybe I should just come in and talk about Batman like every every four months. That would be good. I'd, <laughs> I'd love a recap. Regular, just a little regularity thrown into the. Just variety. scratch the surface. Like there's all sorts of uh, there's all sorts of thought experiments that you've put into this this arena. Yep, it uh, occupies my time more than it should. <laughs> Do you want to make any plugs? Twitter. You should, if you happen to run a game company, you should hire Deanna Epp. <laughs> She's the champion. <laughs> she's lovable. She has a bob. And she's the star of Todd's boyfriend comics, boyfriend girlfriend comics. She's my other favorite comic book character. <laughs> Besides Batman. Yeah. All right. So that's it. Congratulations right. on going the distance. You deserve a bathroom break. Oh, thanks. All right. Bye. Good night. All right. That's a good end point. I'll, I'll splice that into the beginning of the show. Beginning of the show is the end of the show. The beginning is the end is the beginning. Todd Julie Prime on Twitter at, <laughs> at, at Todd Julie Prime sounds sounds good. That's right. that's that's a good endpoint. Yeah, Tralala. Is Fovia still online? No, I took that off. Oh, thank God. Just look at Deanna <laughs> if you want to look at her. <laughs> oh God, let's go aside. That was a little brief little bit of time.